Welcome to the Created to Flourish podcast, where we'll explore the believer's call to respond to great global need. In each episode, we'll be reading a chapter from a book called Created to Flourish, co-authored by Peter Greer and Phil Smith, and we'll examine how employment-based solutions empower families to use their God-given abilities to serve their communities. I'm your host, Hannah Ruth, Hope International's Regional Representative in Minnesota. In this episode, we'll talk about God's design for all people to work and what it means when people do not have the opportunity to work. If you're just joining the podcast, we'd recommend going back and starting from episode one and listening to the episodes in order. Let's dive in. Chapter four, a hand up, not a handout. Written by Peter Greer. Marcel, a friend from Rwanda, wrote an email stating, I am not good because there has been a long time without a job. I'm still looking for a job. My life is not going well for me. Marcel was not making a veiled plea for a handout. He truly wanted an opportunity to use his skills and abilities to provide for his needs. The more time we spend listening to the people we are trying to serve, the more we will hear Marcel's refrain repeated in various contexts and within various cultures. People living in poverty know that a handout is inferior to an opportunity to work and provide for one's own long-term needs. Nearly every human prefers the dignity that comes from employment to the demeaning dependence of handouts. In the United States, we often have a skewed view of work. We might complain about our coworkers, the coffee, the cost of health care, and the lack of vacation. We might complain about our boss and the buzzing of the lights. With all this complaining, we might start to believe that our job is a curse. Work is not a curse. God worked as he created the universe. Adam and Eve had plenty of work to do in caring for the garden. All of this work occurred before sin entered the world. Properly understood, work is a blessing. If you don't believe me, ask someone in the developing world who doesn't have a job. That individual will be able to describe the harm that results from unemployment and how the absence of employment is a much more significant curse than whatever cursed job you might have. A look at the example of ancient Israel and the history of the United States supports the assertion that employment is the best way to address long-term physical poverty. Biblical Model Ancient Israel had a systematic code governing the care of those in poverty. Israel understood what it was like to be oppressed as a result of their bondage in Egypt. Shortly after their miraculous exodus, God provided a system of laws that codify their care for those in need. In the book of Ruth, we see a successful businessman, Boaz, cultivating his fields, but taking special care to leave some of the fields for Ruth, a widow and foreigner from Moab. Boaz was following the requirement in Deuteronomy 24.19, When you are harvesting in your fields and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This law was echoed in the ancient rabbinic tradition. One who prevents the poor from gathering gleanings or allows one poor person to gather and prevents another from doing so is deemed a robber of the poor. In addition to this specific command, Other Old Testament laws governed the ability to reclaim lost land so that individuals could return to work, mandated that wages be paid promptly, and ensured that a high level of care was provided to employees. Notice that these specific laws were designed to protect employment opportunities, 
not facilitate endless handouts. For example, in sharing the harvest, a widow or foreigner was required to do the gathering and the threshing. Work was still required. In the New Testament, Paul warns the church in Thessalonica, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, and sets the expectation that everyone capable of working should provide for themselves and their families. He recognized that giving aid to individuals who have the capacity to work could deprive those who truly need resources. Paul himself lived this principle as he sewed tents and labored so that he would not be a burden to supporting churches. To the Ephesians, Paul writes, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Ephesians 4.28 In this situation, employment is the tool that helps turn robbers into generous givers. These are just a few examples of a broader theme woven throughout Scripture, that the preferred system to care for people in poverty is one that uses God-given abilities in productive employment. Historical Examples The historical record of giving in the United States shows a model similarly focused on employment and responsibility instead of handouts. When the United States was founded, it was considered immoral to give aid to those who had the capacity to work. This would be robbing those who truly needed resources, thus harming the people the aid was meant to help. Cotton Mather, an influential Puritan minister, stated in 1698, I will rather utter an exhortation that you may not abuse your charity by misapplying it. Mather recognized that charity has the potential to do enormous good for people who need it, but that the greatest threat to charity could be those who indiscriminately give without appropriately engaging and involving the recipient. At that point in our nation's history, when an individual asked for assistance, the first response was to look at the situation. If the individual had the ability to work, then he or she was given work, and there was certainly plenty to do in the new world. Food for work programs began and hostels for people in need almost always required some sort of contribution. The idea of someone mooching was intolerable and aid was cautiously distributed only after the individual situation was evaluated. Cotton Mather succinctly encouraged his congregation to find employment for those in poverty. Find them work, set them to work, keep them to work. As the United States prospered, giving grew exponentially. The early 1900s saw a particularly high growth rate of charitable giving. Between 1911 and 1925, 16 of the largest cities increased their relief payments from 1.6 million to 14.7 million, a 918% increase. With this growth came a professionalization and delocalization of giving, as well as a slow shift away from employment-producing programs. When the Great Depression hit, President Franklin D. Roosevelt hoped that his New Deal responses would be only a temporary solution. In November 1933, he stated, When any man or woman goes on a dole, something happens to them mentally, and the quicker they are taken off the dole, the better it is for them the rest of their lives. Many of the New Deal programs were designed not around entitlement, but on employment. Charity was and is best seen as a temporary assistance to bridge the gap between need and employment. Unfortunately, 
many U.S. churches have slipped into a charity mindset that do not follow the historical or the scriptural example. The shift away from employment has unintentionally crippled the church's long-term impact on poverty. The Benefits of Employment Over Charity Do you remember how you felt when you received your first paycheck? In middle school, I mowed elderly Mrs. Johnson's lawn. She would inspect my work and acknowledge that I had cut close enough to her barn and not missed any sections under her apple trees. Then she would invite me into her house, offer me a cold tang mixed with her special spices, and pay me for my work. I enjoyed a strong sense of satisfaction as she thanked me for a job well done. Relying on charity might provide enough for a bare existence, but it will never be enough to help someone off their knees. Charity will never allow an individual to flourish in the way God created humankind to be, productive in caring for the earth and using the strength and skills he gave. And besides, charity isn't what those living in poverty want. We've all heard the saying, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, but if you teach a man to fish, you feed him for life. These well-worn words contain an important truth. Who would settle for an occasional fish dropped off on their doorstep if they had the opportunity to start their own fishing business? Drawing on his personal experience with the Waodani tribe, missionary Steve Saint writes, We may be the wealthiest nation and the wealthiest Christians on earth, but that is not a good reason to give someone something. Saint goes on to describe the following challenges that come from long-term handouts. No value. It is much more difficult to appreciate the value of something that costs us nothing. Consequently, it does not last as long. Personal devaluation. If people are always given things, they begin to expect them, thereby negating personal dreams or aspirations of climbing out of their current condition. Always being on the receiving end encourages people to see themselves as incompetent, unable to learn even if they did decide they wanted to learn. Desire becomes necessity. Giving a gift to one person can result in everyone else wanting one as well. Similar but more critical is the possibility that if the first gift proves effective, there will suddenly be a legitimate need for many more. And if you cannot give the same tool to everyone, it is better not to give it to anyone. Help make it affordable, and then everyone can buy their own. Flying Kites When we engage in employment-based solutions, the benefits of employment extend to future generations. Outside a small office in Trudenor, Haiti, I saw several boys with homemade kites. Using a plastic bag, some string, and a few sticks, these three boys constructed kites capable of expertly navigating tangled power lines and two-story buildings. I could see other kids watching and learning from their example. Other children saw what was possible, and there grew a prestige factor in who could get his kite the highest. In the same way, I've seen community members improve their lives, motivating other community members to action through their hard work. If my neighbors can pull their families out of poverty, why can't I? Essentially, they are pushing the limits of what is possible, and from very little, they are making kites that can fly higher and higher. Employment decreases the need for never-ending support. There is an exit strategy for any external assistance provided. Many churches are beginning to recognize that their international assistance has built churches, trained pastors, fed the hungry, and somehow created a web of dependency from which there is no way out. 
They have not built the surrounding economic infrastructure to ensure the longevity of these worthy efforts. Contrast this type of situation with Jacob Timo's experience in Moldova. While Moldova is one of the poorest countries in Europe, with almost 22% of Moldovans living below the poverty line, Jacob is an example of someone using business to help both his family and community move forward. In 2004, Jacob took out a $400 loan from Invest Credit, a local Christ-centered organization, to buy six rabbits. Since then, Jacob has used subsequent loans to expand his business, and he currently sells over 300 rabbits a year, both in Moldova and in neighboring European countries. Jacob uses his business to minister to others. Rather than focusing on competition, Jacob donates rabbits to other families interested in starting their own business. He builds a partial refund into his business model and asks customers to donate this amount to their local church. This surprising policy leads many of his customers to ask questions, prompting several conversations about faith. One customer heard the gospel when she went to church to donate the refunded money and then accepted Christ. A pastor as well as a farmer, Jacob deeply believes in the power of business to create change. So many believers run businesses here, create jobs for others, and provide services for the community. Where to begin? If gifts don't create long-term change, and handouts tend to keep people on their knees, and if lasting solutions for families in poverty come through employment, does that let us off the hook? Absolutely not. We have the potential to play a critical role in advancing employment opportunities and helping those in poverty dramatically improve their lives. But how? What can you and I do that actually helps? First, we need to understand what it would be like to be born in rural Siem Reap, Cambodia. Over a decade ago, I briefly worked in this town situated a day's boat ride north of the capital, Phnom Penh, and it provided my first glimpse into rural poverty. Every day after work, I would jump on a moped and speed away to watch the sunset from the pinnacles of the temples of Angkor Wat, the Asian pyramids. On my drive there, I would pass farmers wading in rice fields, planting, and I would try to understand what life would be like if I were born into their situation. If you were born to a rural farm family and stopped your education at the fourth grade, how could you secure one of the competitive positions of formal employment? How would you even know about job openings? You wouldn't receive a newspaper. You wouldn't post your resume on LinkedIn. If you weren't related to someone already inside an organization that offered formal employment or didn't have sufficient savings to bribe your way in, you wouldn't have a chance. In many developing countries, if you did receive a job offer, you would be required to pay a deposit. The practice of requiring deposits is one of the most oppressive systems for employees in poverty. Outside Pune, India, rural laborers are paid 85 cents per day and yet are required to provide a deposit of up to $50 without any documentation or guarantee that these funds will be returned when their employment ends. Consider the reality of life for men and women living in poverty. What could you do to earn money beyond your meager wages from What could you do to earn money beyond your meager wages from subsistence agriculture or day labor for an oppressive employer? Your only option would be to create your own employment. What would you do to provide a better life for your children? How would you start? What would you need? 
Thanks for joining us on the Created to Flourish podcast. This podcast is a production of Hope International, a global nonprofit that responds to the call to serve those living in poverty by providing discipleship, biblically-based training, a safe place to save, and small business loans. If you're interested in learning more about Hope International, we invite you to check out Hope's website, www.hopeinternational.org flourish.